This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Lane here with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. As you guys know, I recently exchanged two properties in Seattle for nine properties in the Midwest to change my portfolio from more of appreciation or what I call gambling portfolio into a more cash flow or dividend portfolio. I think it's just a little bit more safer with where we are in the market cycle. And I feel like I'm hedged in case that there's a market correction coming up. I don't have a crystal ball, but it just makes me feel a lot better. And I'm fine with the cash flow. Again, you always have to ask yourself, what's your goal? What what are you trying to accomplish here? Personally, my goal is to increase my cash flow. And that's why I purchased these properties out of state where the cash flow is better. So right now I'm going to play Jason Hartman's podcast and we're going to go through a bunch of tips for the 1031 exchange. So please enjoy. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the AIPIS show for accredited income property investment specialists and those who aspire to be. If you're a real estate, mortgage, or financial professional, this is the place for you. We'll explore innovative investment analysis, sales, marketing, and income generating strategies for the most historically proven wealth creator, income property. Learn from the experts as they show you how to build a better business and a better life. Welcome to the AIPIS show for accredited income property investment specialist and those who desire to be. This is your host, Jason Hartman, where we talk about increasing your income, your productivity, and just generally having a better life while serving your clients better with America's most historically proven asset class, income property. We have a great interview for you today, and we will be back with that in less than 60 seconds. Hey, I'd like to welcome Lane, who is going to share an investor profile with us and uh, some tips he's used to do 1031 exchanges. He actually calls it 11 not-so-obvious 1031 exchange strategies. Lane, welcome. How are you? Hey, Jason. How's it going? It's good to have you on the show. So you've been buying a lot of properties, and you've been uh, working pretty hard at this, it sounds like, and you're doing great, and your ultimate goal is to graduate to uh, doing apartment syndications, it sounds like. Tell us your story and how you got started and, and really how you became interested, first of all. I think that would be interesting to the listeners. Oh, okay. So um graduated from UW, University of Washington, with a BS in industrial engineering. I went straight to work at a horrible job where I was traveling all the time. Good thing uh, let me save a lot of money. So I shortly bought a home that I was never in because I was traveling all the time and realized that it was kind of dumb to just be there on Saturdays. So I started renting it out and then I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. So then shortly after I read The Rich Dad, Poor Dad and then started to digest all these podcasts like your podcast and a whole bunch of others and just started drink the whole Kool-Aid on this whole real estate investing. Good stuff. Why real estate? Were you investing in stocks before that? Or did you just look around the investor landscape world out there and think that real estate was the thing? Or I guess it was it Rich Dad Poor Dad that convinced you of that? Or, or what, what was the sort of catalyst? 
Well, I was always into the stock market. I think when I was like 13, I had a Roth IRA where we did the Vanguard 500. <laughs> That's awesome. But um, <laughs> I guess in that first few months of working, we had to do a lot of corporate training. So I was really in the had a lot of free time on my hands after five o'clock, just in the hotel sitting around. So mm-hmm. I really got into like day trading and just wasted a lot of time, you know, watching that was that fast money and all those CNBC shows. And I really, really got into all the technical analysis and these triple bottoms, areas of support. And I forget what all the terms was. And they had stock tweets back then, too. And I was really into that. Right. I'm kind of curious what you think of technical analysis. I think it's totally overrated. And here's why. You can look at the charts all, you know, being a chartist, right? <laughs> and, and being into technical analysis, you can look at those all day long, but there's so much more going on than the chart. How can people just think that they can predict a stock's movement from looking at a chart without looking at the outside world? That <laughs> kind of blows my mind. Well, I believed in the whole magic show for a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, those guys, they have all these videos and they use all these lines and they sell a lot of newsletters and subscriptions doing that stuff. Yeah. The way I saw it is the stocks, you're trying to figure out two variables. The first variable is how is this stock doing or this company doing? you know, all their metrics. And the second that really depends on a stock price is what's the perception or what's the expectations on the street. You've got two variables and, you know, it's just basic algebra. You can't figure out an equation if you've got two variables. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a game that you can't win. Yeah, interesting. I think a lot of people are coming to that conclusion. You know what? It's rigged, as we've talked about so many times before on the show. But uh, yeah, tell us a little bit more about your start into real estate once you decided that was the thing. I guess we're at that point. And what did you do next? You bought that one property, it sounds like? and Yeah, started renting it out. And then, you know, saw how I was getting a bunch of rent. And, you know, the spread between the rent and what the mortgage was, was pretty good. I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, it was a A rental, A class rental. I think it was about $350,000 and it rented for about Uh $2,200. So that's in Seattle. You know, that's definitely well below that 1% rent-to-value ratio. Seattle doesn't work. It's too expensive. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Okay. So what did you do after that one? Bought another duplex, Mm -hmm. you know, $250,000 that rented for about $2,000 a month. That was a little better. Yeah. But then shortly after, you know, after 2012, the market kept on getting better and better. And then, you know, that $250,000 home went up to $350,000 and the rent stayed the same. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I started to look elsewhere and, you know, 30 miles away from Seattle. And then I was like, you know, I don't know anything about these places. So I bought one property in Birmingham, you know, tried this out of state thing just to get proof of concept and it worked. Mm -hmm. So then... I just set this uh, 1031 thing up to sell all my properties in Seattle and go gangbusters out of state. Right, right. How do you know it worked? What was the evidence that the, like the Birmingham deal, uh, what, maybe 2,000 miles from your home, how did you know it worked? What was the metric? What was the evidence for you? You know, just getting all the teams in place and being able to run it and not getting uh, swindled by property manager or, you know, all all those stories that you hear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody says, oh, you need to invest in your backyard. I think that's a little ridiculous. I mean, that's... It's it's, an old-fashioned idea, you know. Right. In my job in corporate America, you know, I had employees that were out of state and, you know, that's just how we do things. I don't know how it's much different than this. And the better thing with this is you can just fire the property management if they're not working for you. Right, right. And, you know, that's interesting that you mentioned the employees out of state. And 
I never thought it would be this way when I first got into business many years ago that I'd have people working virtually that have been with me for, you know, eight, 10 years, maybe longer, and I've never met them. (laughs) And they do a great job. When you limit yourself, I think there's a metaphor here. If you're an employer and you limit yourself only to the people in your local market, you're limiting the talent pool. When you're an investor, if you're only looking in your local market, you're limiting the opportunities, right? It's the same thing. It's the same concept. When you're not limited by geography, you can just hire the best people or you can buy the best properties because geography is no longer a limiting factor to you. The world is your oyster, as the saying goes, right? All right. And I'll I'll one-up you there. And here in Seattle, there's a whole bunch of money and it's just stupid money here. Mm-hmm. And I went to this one uh, auction buying thing where there's a whole bunch of uh, very rich tech money in, in the room. And you know, these people didn't know anything, right. anything about rentals. They didn't know anything about rental value ratios or what made a good rental. And these are the people I'm bidding against for these duplexes or you know, single family homes in Seattle. And I'm sure that's how it is everywhere, where there's a bunch of money running around. Yeah, no question. You know, just I think that's another good lesson here out of this is that just because someone is successful in one area of their life doesn't mean they know everything there is to be successful in another area. (laughs) So they might be great in the tech world. You know, they got some stock options they cashed in or they're doing their own startup or whatever. And they could be incredibly talented, but it doesn't mean they know anything about real estate. You know, so, yeah, it's a whole different specialty. Right. I stopped trying to get the approval of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people are driving a lot nicer cars than I do. So I guess what do I know, huh? Yeah, but those cars are depreciating right under them. <laughs> right. So, and you've got a bunch of appreciating assets. Okay, so take us further along in your journey. So after I had that one Birmingham property, I was, you know, got proof of concept there. And then I, uh, as I said, the market started to heat up here in Seattle. And then, you know, my two properties, they went up in value quite a bit. You know, I got lucky and... I started to look at it from the return of equity standpoint. You know, we all talk about the cash on cash return, but you know, when you look at the return of equity, which is includes your amount of equity that you have tied up in the property. I mean, some of these properties I was getting like less than five percent, and for that amount, you might as well be in like the stocks. You know, the mm-hmm. thing that we all hate. Yeah, that's a good point. But everybody in those types of markets, at least at times in the cycle, you know, if the real estate cycle is. Someone will say it's seven years, someone will say it's 18 years, and there are different levels in the cycle, obviously. But it's the old thing that I always say, everybody's a genius in a bull market, (laughs) you know, but they just got lucky. It's just luck, right? They think they're a genius, but they're just not. They got lucky. So take your luck and follow the Kenny Rogers uh, idea. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them and no one to walk away and no one to run as the song goes. And, and, you know, so that was very smart. You took your money off the table out of the market where you got lucky and you diversified it into other markets that were just sensible. And so where else did you diversify into? You talked about Birmingham. What else? Atlanta and Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Okay. And why those markets? You know, my main goal is for cash flow. But Birmingham has a lot more cash flow than Atlanta. Atlanta's had a more of appreciation play, I thought. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just kind of putting your money around the craps table in a way, mm-hmm. as I like to think about it. You know, you don't want to be in an all-in-one market, but you want to kind of cluster around certain cities and have enough 
homes in one place where you can kind of pull your weight around with the property management, have a nice little portfolio with for them to take care of. Right, exactly. So you have a little bit of leverage and a little bit of sort of weight, you know, where you're, you're a customer with more than one deal, right? So they care a little more, right? And also, it also kind of seems like every year or two, there's one, one of these cities that we're all in will kind of pop like Atlanta did in, I think it was 2012 or 13 when all the hedge funds went in. And, you know, just by being diversified on the craps table, you can kind of take advantage of that. You know, if Atlanta pops again, you can sell that and buy double in India or Kansas City, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so tell us about some of your exchange strategies. I mean, uh, you talk about 11 different uh, tips there. Yeah, so I guess first off, I'm not a lawyer or a 1031 person. So this is just kind of my experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. First tip I got here is, uh, you know, you should just really have your properties ready to go, whether um, I guess we're getting properties from you, Jason, or, uh, you know, you got an agent working for you you need to figure out how much money you're going to have. And I had a, quite a bit. And um, what the lawyer says you need to do is you have 180 days from the sale of your first property, your subject property, to exchange it into like kind investments. So you can do the math on your own and figure out how much money you're going to you know, net from the sale. And you can figure out how much uh, properties you need to pick up, whether you're getting leverage or paying by cash. So you really need to like build that list of properties and property providers to really get you that inventory that you need to hit. Absolutely. Okay. So have properties ready to go, hopefully, you know, when you sell the other properties. That's the lesson, right? That's right. You've got that 45 days to identify. And right now in this market, inventory is pretty scarce. So, uh, I mean, there's lots of crap inventory out there, but good inventory is not that easy to find. So have those properties ready to go. And then what else? Uh, Tip number two, don't screw around. (laughs) Yeah, this kind of goes with uh, the first tip there. You know, if you got a lot of deadlines here, you got the 180 day time limit. But that 45 day list that you mentioned, that's really the that's the big one. So once you sell your property, the clock starts ticking. You got 45 days to create this list on paper that you have to write down the addresses that you could possibly uh, close on. Mm-hmm. So if 46 day comes and then five properties come up on your uh, through your email from a provider, well, then you can't put it on your 45 day list. It's just, it is what it is. You can't do it. And yeah. also you can't put all the properties under the sun on your 45 day list. You're restricted to 200% of the property that you're exchanging in. And you should probably work with your uh, exchange uh, custodian on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a big restriction that you're working with there. You got to be really strategic. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. And this stuff, it can get a little hairy and complicated sometimes if you start doing some more technical things in the exchanges. There's no question about that. So getting accountants and lawyers and lenders who are experienced with real estate investing is really key, right? That's right. And that kind of goes into the third tip there. You need to be working with the 1031 custodian who has done these things in the past and kind of can advise you. Mm-hmm. And then you need to vet your plan with them to make sure it's all kosher right. with all the rules. Yeah, good stuff. Okay. And so you talked about the 45-day rule, uh, of course. And I think your next tip is is a good one. Have a backup plan because the IRS allows you to identify more properties than you're buying. And so what I did, and in, in I'm currently doing an exchange right at the moment as we speak, I identified 
I just said to our local market specialist, I said, look, I bought these two properties from you. And they, by the way, are in Memphis. But listen, what do you have that's just coming down the pipeline that you're not even offering yet to my clients? Because if they offer it to my clients and it's decent inventory, it's going to be gone. Okay. And I said, what is it that you're just picking up that you haven't even started a rehab on yet? You know, just give me two more addresses <laughs> that total the same amount of money. And uh, I want to put them on the list and identify them as well in case I, for some reason, can't close on the ones that I identified. You know, maybe the inspection will come back, find out it the house is a meth lab and it's got a broken slab and uh, you know, there's dead bodies underneath. Right? <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> and so if there's some reason, you know, that was my backup plan. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and you pretty much hit the uh, nail on the head there. But you want to, about 20 days into your uh, your period there, you want to send out an email or I would prefer calling. I mean, you need to let these people know that you are serious mm-hmm. so that they give you those pipeline properties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, all right. What else should we know? So we talked about the 1031 facilitator. Every situation is unique. You got to even question, you know, even before you do this, if the 1031 is really the best option you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's better for you to just do a HELOC or just uh, sell, the, you know, sell the property and hold on to the cash. Mm-hmm. So maybe this might be probably before you even make the sale, but you just got to think for yourself if you know, this is the right thing to be doing. Right, yeah. Good, good point. The exchange probably is the right thing. But for example, if those Seattle properties that you mentioned hadn't appreciated dramatically, say there was a little bit of appreciation in them and your rent to value ratios weren't too far out of sync. Now, obviously they were very far out of sync. So what you did in terms of the 1031 exchange, I'd say was the best strategy. I'm wondering, do you still feel that way? Do you still feel that was your best bet? I do. I mean, the other option would be to get a HELOC Mm -hmm. and kind of just draw off the money from that HELOC. Right. The HELOC, to me, doesn't make that much sense unless those properties were less highly appreciated, less appreciated, right? If they were a little bit, like I said, and it wasn't that far out of sync on the rent-to-value ratio, you know, do the HELOC, and that's basically my refi till you die plan. But I think you made the right decision because they were too far out of sync. That's just not the right property to keep. Right. And me. one thing that you also have to think about is, you know, if, especially if you're financing these properties, the debt to income ratios can get all out of whack once you start to using that HELOC. Mm-hmm. So it's just another pro tip there, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that will limit you in terms of what you can purchase with your 10 loan limit, or if you're married and you've got a spouse that can qualify, your 20 loan limit in that case. So uh, yeah, another good point. You won't be able to buy as many properties and or at least leveraged properties. So yeah, good. Okay. All right. What else? So that kind of segues into you know getting everybody on your team on the same page, which includes the 1031 facilitator and the lender. You know, we need to properly communicate what you're trying to do and does this work with your debt to income requirements and uh, cash reserves. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Anything else you want to tell us about that one or you want to just take us to the next step? I'm not a lending expert and I haven't bought a property in about a few months. So I know things are quite changing all the time. Now I hear that you can use 100% of your uh, Roth IRA or 401k as cash reserves as opposed to 70%. So that's Uh something new. And then I guess before properties one through four, you could go with 20% down and now they're making it one through six. So that makes it a little easier. But, Uh you know, stuff changes all the time. 
all lenders are different. Yeah, they sure are. Yeah. It's not changing that quickly, but I wish it would change a little more because do you agree, by the way, that it's, you know, sort of since the financial crisis, it's the banks have just overcorrected. I think they're still being way too conservative. Not in every way. But the thing that bugs the heck out of me is the 10 property limit, right? Because before the Great Recession, you could get 200 loans. <laughs> you know, I think the 10 property limit just doesn't make much sense, assuming that that borrower is a good borrower in all the other normal ways, especially if they've got a resume of, uh, you know, nationwide investing, where they have proven that they can handle it. Right, I agree. I mean, I, I think, like, I've been looking at some portfolio loans lately, and the big thing that they key in on it is that this ratio, that service coverage ratio, needs to be at least 1.25. Mm-hmm. And that kind of just shows what kind of a rental you're buying. I mean, if the cash flow works and all the numbers work, then they'll give you the loan. Right, right. 1.25, I mean, if anyone goes to jasonhartman.com and they start looking at properties, there's a lot of properties you can buy with better DTIs. Or, well, that's not a DTI really, but it's a... The DTI is your personal ratio, okay? But the uh, overall debt coverage ratio is pretty good. I mean, you can outperform that pretty easily, right? Right. I mean, you're usually at about 1.5. Got Oh, yeah, but I was looking at one the other day. It had almost 2%. Property could literally be vacant half the time, <laughs> and you'd still be okay. So, yeah, pretty cool. Okay. What else do you want the listeners to know? So as you get to the end of the 1031 timeline, probably going to get a little desperate because inevitably something's going to go wrong. You know, one of the properties might not pass your inspection or, you know, might have a little bit more rehab than you, you'd like to do. But you get to just have to make that decision. Nothing Is ever it- goes wrong in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. But yeah. Okay, so make that decision and go ahead. Right. I mean, you might have to you know, you might be in a separation of $10,000 to pay more, but you have to do the math. Is it better to pay 25% of the $30,000 to not close that property to taxes or just give that seller, you know, five grand and make it work? Yeah, that's a really good point. When you look at, I'm glad you mentioned that. When you look at the big picture, sometimes a lot of, you know, a lot of us, it's just sort of this weird thing about human nature. We go through life stepping on dollars and picking up pennies. And sometimes, even if it irks you, it's better to pay, like in that case, you mentioned the 5000 extra to just make the deal work, right? Than to pay the tax man, because the tax man's going to take $15,000, for example, you know? So, you know, that can, you know, bite your tongue and just, you know, do it <laughs> sometimes, right? Right. I also mentioned before communicating that, you know, this is 1031 money and everyone's going to know that you're serious. Right. But at the end, it can also hurt you. Yeah. Everybody knows you're desperate. And- That's true. And I hate that about 1031 money. Sometimes I don't want to tell them, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just say, hey, look, I want to buy a couple properties, you know. But if they know it's 1031 money, they're going to know you got to identify them. You know, you've got 45 days. Right. And then the next thing here is just take it day by day. You know, you got that. With so many properties, you're going to be probably filling out some kind of form or writing a to whom it may concern letter every night. Mm-hmm. So, And that means to the lender that you're trying to get financing with, right? Saying, hey, to whom it may concern, this is why this little weird thing shows up on my credit report. You know, drives you nuts, right? Is that what you're talking about? 
That's right. And, you know, especially when you're doing simultaneous closings, you know, things get a little crazy. Yeah, they do. They do. And it's easy to get mixed up on paperwork. So I'd love to ask you about any organizational tips that you have for people. But I want to mention one of my own things. And this is driving me crazy. I was just looking at this the other day. There is a tax lien that shows up on my profile from, get this, it's for a whopping $237. And I paid it because I remember it came up when I was trying to buy a property. I didn't even know I had it. You know, I must have missed some little like supplemental property tax bill or something. But get this, from 1996. 1996! And it still shows up. And I have had to write so many explanation letters for this dumb thing. I somehow cannot get it to go away. This is 20 years ago. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I mean, and I paid it. (laughs) And it still shows up. And they still, lenders to this day, ask about it. It blows my mind. So I literally have this, to whom it may concern, this was paid. It's wrong. (laughs) I don't know why you're seeing it. I have to do that letter over and over again. It's funny. Yeah, so some tips on just general paperwork. I use Dropbox. You know, everything's up in the cloud. Your lender wants something, you can be sitting on a park bench and you can just send the link to your Dropbox or heck, give the lender access to the Dropbox and share the actual folder with all the root files and tags that, you know, are associated with each document. Yeah. How do you keep that, though? You know, when you share a link like that, you got to be really careful because this is financial information, right? So, you know, you got to be careful of your Dropbox settings, I assume, right? Do you make your links expired? Do you, do you do all this stuff like that? Any any tips there? I mean, actually, with the lender, we're, we're actually sharing the actual folder. So if they make a change on their end and drag one file into the next folder, it's the same thing on my computer. Yeah, right. But, you know, my theory, Jason, is that people are going to steal your information regardless. At least this way you know about it quicker. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's sort I of mean, a fatalistic attitude, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really interesting. Okay, okay. so Dropbox, anything else? Just have root files, you know, for example, you know, one property, you have four or five folders, and then you got you know, their folders separated from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just kind of just stuff from corporate America, you know, that's yeah, how right. they do it. Yep. Can't be that bad. Yep. That's true. That's true. Good stuff. Do you have a website or anything you want to share? Any resources that you've used uh, other than Dropbox, obviously, that just help you uh, be more efficient as an investor? Any any websites you like or, you know, whatever. My website is simplepassivecashflow.com. Got a little podcast. It's a lot, lot shorter than everyone else's out there. <laughs> Are you referring to me? Are you picking on me when you say that? <laughs> Yes, I am guilty of being long-winded, I'll admit it. But other resources that I use, you know, just Microsoft Excel. I mean, you got to be able to make these spreadsheets for yourself. Right. I'm not a fan of all the QuickBooks. Maybe it's just because I'm an engineer and I like to do that stuff. Right. Good stuff. Well, hey, thank you for sharing your investor journey with us. And uh, tell us what's next for you. I mean, you want to do apartment syndications, it sounds like, right? Yeah, it just seems, you know, more my style to kind of create larger investments because you know there's a a lot of people out there that you and I kind of help people get into the single families and single families are the best way to go you know especially under 10 properties when you can get that sweet Fannie Mae financing Mm -hmm. but you know I mean it's not for everybody I guess I mean not everyone's willing to take the step maybe that's why it's so easy once you do but some people are more passive than that 
and they just want to be in a proven investment mm -hmm. with someone in, as the lead. Yeah, right. Exactly. And some people really just need to be passive on some of their stuff because uh, they just don't have time to do anything at all. I mean, some people literally have no time. So they just got to give their money to someone and do it. But, you know, of course, that has its pitfalls. You got to be doing it with someone you trust. That's for sure in terms of competence and confidence, both items. So, yeah, good. Again, thanks so much for sharing this today. And uh, we appreciate it. And uh, happy investing to you. All right. Thanks, Jason. You know, sometimes I think of Jason Hartman as a walking encyclopedia on the subject of creating wealth. Well, you're probably not far off from the truth, Penny, because Jason actually has a three-book set on creating wealth that comes with 60 digital download audios. Yes, Jason has that unique ability to make you understand investing the way it should be. It's a world where anything less than 26% annual return is disappointing. I love how he actually shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. I also like how he teaches you to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And the entire set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered at a savings of $94. That's right. And to get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series, complete with over 60 hours of audio and three books, just go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month, just like a banker, Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.